right, Ezekiel. Just uh, get his place in, in the scheme of things. Bit of revision. Isaiah was down in Jerusalem when the northern kingdom went into the Assyrian captivity. Now, a hundred years later, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem in the lead-up to Judah going into the Babylonian captivity. So, Isaiah in Jerusalem, the northern kingdom, went into captivity. The southern kingdom was delivered through his ministry. But a hundred years later, Jeremiah in the southern kingdom and the Babylonians take it into captivity. And of course, Jeremiah saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel comes in Jeremiah's time period, with Jeremiah in the lead-up to the Babylonian captivity. But Ezekiel was younger than Jeremiah, and um, he actually was taken into exile about 11 years before Jerusalem actually fell. So the situation is that you've got Jeremiah in all the years the lead-up to the Babylonian captivity, and 11 years before Jerusalem actually fell, young Ezekiel, because he would have been fairly young, went into exile and was taken up to Babylon. So 11 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel was taken in the early wave of Jews being taken into captivity up to Babylon. So you've now got in the 11 year period of the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, you've got Jeremiah still down in Jerusalem, but now we've got Ezekiel up in Babylon amongst all the exiles who have been taken into the Babylonian captivity. So he's paralleling Jeremiah. Jeremiah, prophet of the Lord to the Israelites in Israel, Ezekiel, a prophet of the Lord to the Israelites, actually in the captivity. So I say he was younger than Jeremiah, he was a priest. And when he was taken into captivity, he, he dwelt, he lived, he made his home just by the river Kiba. Um, and it was a, a, just in a town in Babylon called Tel Aviv. And uh, in actual fact, he went into captivity with King Jehoiakim, who was the last but one king of Israel. And remember, he was taken off by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, note at this point that as we go through the prophecies that came through Ezekiel, that you're going to see a similarity between the visions that he had and John on Patmos and the book of Revelation. And the reason for that, that there's that similarity, is because there was another prophet in the exile at that same time with Ezekiel called Daniel. Now Daniel had been there nine years before Ezekiel arrived, but Daniel was already fairly famous. And so the visions that he had are very similar to John on Patmos and Daniel. So the end times figure and revelation figures a bit um, in Ezekiel's book. Now, let's just break it down into a basic outline. It goes, it divides up neatly into four parts. Um, in chapters 1 to 3, you get the calling of Ezekiel, you know, how he came to be a prophet and what the Lord called him to do. 
Then in section 2, from chapter 4 through to chapter 24, you get prophecies against the holy city, against Jerusalem, foretelling that the destruction of Jerusalem was going to come. And then in the third section, chapters 25 to 32, you get prophecies against the nations, the Gentiles, you know, I mean the Babylonians, but not just them, all the surrounding nations. And then in the final quarter, from chapter 33 onwards, you get prophecies concerning Israel's restoration in the end times. That's where, you know, sort of like the Daniel imagery and, you know, sort of John on Patmos comes in. Right, okay, let's, let's go uh, chapter one and uh, take it one chapter at a time. And um, we're dealing with his calling now, and uh, he, he has a vision of uh, the cherubim surrounding the Lord. And uh, these are the angels that are immediately either side of the Lord around the throne in heaven. Um, they've got six, six wings, each have six wings, but they're basically humanoid in appearance. Um, and each of them have a face of a man, and a face of a lion, and a face of an ox, and a face of an eagle. Of course, you have great fun working out the symbolism of that, but I'm not going to go into it here. And he has a vision of this, this thing, you know, the wheels within the wheels, an extraordinary, you know, sort of thing that, that he sees. You know, these wheels spinning, and that the, the wheels are connected to living creatures who are clearly, um, you know, angels. And as the living creatures move, the wheels move with them. But the living creatures aren't the wheels, but they're spirits in the wheels. You know, I mean, as close as you can get it, you know, I mean, he's seeing something akin to flying saucers. It's most peculiar what he seems. It makes close encounters of the third kind seem fairly natural and fairly ordinary. But, uh, you know, this vision of, of the Lord and his glory and all these weird wheels that, that are all tied up with um, the angels. And I mean, really, all, all you can do is to read it, you know, to try and appreciate it yourself. And then eventually he sees the Lord himself. And if, if we just read from verse 28, and um, the second half of verse 28, because you get this really odd, these weird visions that he's having. Um, even so, that some Bible commentators have, have, have sort of wondered whether Ezekiel was mentally ill, which is, of course, um, you know, to fail to appreciate um, that if you have a vision of the Lord, you might see some pretty odd things. I mean, you know, Ezekiel wasn't mentally ill at all. But um, the second half of verse 28, he says this, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So, what he's doing is he's not describing the glory of the Lord. Can't do that. He's not even describing the likeness of the glory of the Lord, because you can't do that either. The closest you can get is what he did, describing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You see what I mean? And hence all these wheels and, and these weird things that he's seeing, because he's trying to describe the utterly indescribable, and therefore it comes over as being really weird. When we get to heaven, we'll find out what these wheels are, and you know, I mean, you know, we'll be up there, we'll see it all, it'll be absolutely amazing. But uh, anyway, this was the vision of the Lord that he had, um, as the Lord calls him to be a prophet. And then in chapters 2 and 3, you get the Lord actually speaking to him and calling him into the ministry of being a prophet. And uh, he's warned from the outset of all the persecution that he's going to go through. 
that his ministry would bring trouble on him and persecution and you know it, it's not going to be easy he was told that from the outset and he's given a message from the Lord in the form of a, a scroll you know a scroll of paper because that's what they wrote on in those days they didn't have books they had scrolls and this scroll comes to him and it's the word of the Lord that he's to preach and uh, he eats it he eats it and he finds it sweet to the taste and uh, you know a picture there of digesting the word of God because to pass on God's word it needs to become part of you in the same way that your dinner is, is even now as I speak becoming part of you so the word of God needs to become part of us and that's the picture of prophets eating the scroll and um, and God tells him that he's been made a watchman for the nation and that as a watchman he is responsible for warning the nation of the impending judgment of course the idea being the watchman of the city on the city walls if an enemy came if the watchman gives the warning and the people take no notice and die it's their own fault but of course if the watchman doesn't sound the warning and the invading army gets in the city then everyone has died and it's the fault of the watchman and God says to him, look, you're going to be the watchman and you've got to make sure that you speak out when you see the enemy coming, i.e. the judgment that was going to be coming upon them. And after the Lord has told him all this, then Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord again. And he gets a rerun. And the tape, as it were, plays again and all the wheels and everything like that. And then the Lord tells him to, to shut himself in his house, to go and lock himself indoors for a while. And, uh, and the Lord tells him that at certain times he would have silence imposed on him. That there would be periods of time when he wouldn't be allowed to speak. And of course that would be uh, symbolic of the fact that God wasn't speaking to his people anymore because of their sin. And uh, he was told as well that there'd be times when he was actually tied up. You know, so I mean this, this, this is not a fun ministry that, that he's being called to. So in, in, in chapter 4, his ministry begins and, and we move into the second section of the prophecies foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem to come. Remember, he's passing this on to the exiles up in Babylon. And um, in chapter 4, he draws Jerusalem on a clay tablet. He gets a tablet of stone and he draws a map of Jerusalem. He puts it down and he puts models of siege works around it. So he's making a little model here. And um, these siege works all around this drawing he's done of Jerusalem. And of course to symbolise that destruction was going to come upon the city. Because of course the Babylonians besieged around Jerusalem for some time before it actually fell. Then he, he's commanded to, to, to lay on his side for a period of just over one year. Actually, lie, every morning gets up and he goes to work and he lies on his side all day. Um, and this, this was symbolising the sin that Israel had done against the Lord. And while he's doing this, while he's lying down on one side every day for a year, the Lord ties him up. And it's a picture of the bondage of sin. If you get into undealt with sin, it ties you up. And God's people, rather than being free, they were bound up, they were tied up because of their sins. And also during this time, the Lord calls him to, um, or tells him that he's got to, to live 
on a, a really lean vegetarian diet. So no good eating for him. He was to go vegetarian and to eat the minimum that he possibly could. Uh, you know, uh, you know, to symbolise the opposite of the bounty of the land. You know, the leanness of spirit that was in God's people. And uh, in fact, this lean vegetarian diet that he was to live on during this time, the Lord told him that he was to cook it over human dung, over human feces. Again, to symbolise the uncleanness of God's people. Now, what he does is he remonstrates with the Lord. He says, Lord, this is too much. And so the Lord relents on that one and allows him to proceed cooking it over cow's dung. But do you see how this graphically symbolises, you know, the, 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 you know, the famine and the drought and the leanness that was to come upon Jerusalem? So he's a very graphic man. He's being called to act out the prophecies uh, that the Lord gives him. So he's symbolising so much by his actions. Now in chapter 5, the Lord tells him to shave himself. All right, so he had a, a beard. And, um, and he's, he was told to shave his head and his beard. So he was going Kojak on this one. And having done that, he, he gathered all, all the, his hair of his head and his beard. And, um, and he divides it into three portions. Now, a third of it he burns. A third of it he strikes by the sword, like in the air and whacks it around with the sword. And a third of it he scatters to the wind. And of course, all this is symbolic of the judgment that God was bringing on his people. And it was kind of a picture, you know I mean, of the fires when the city fell. Um, all the people dying by the sword and being scattered to the winds, they were taken off all over the then known world. And so Israel is being forced out of the land because of God's judgment. So Jerusalem destroyed. And, um, and that's what all this is, uh, is symbolised. And he's told here that even a cannibalistic acts would occur during the siege. And that actually happened. The Jews became so starving that they were actually eating their own children. All that happened uh, during the fall of the Holy City. It was unbelievably awful. Now in chapter 6, he delivers a prophecy against the mountains of Israel. Um, the mountains of Israel, in this prophecy, depicting the high places where all the rituals and occultism and idolatry happened. Uh, the high places were altars, and uh, they would be where, you know, sort of various uh, sacrifices were made to idols. And of course this was the idolatry, the occultism, that the Lord all the time told Israel, do not do what the Canaanites did, and, and all the time Israel kept going back on the Lord's words to them, and, you know, getting into the idolatry and the occultism of the Canaanites, and the high places were called the mountains of Israel, the Lord, you know, kind of speaks against them through him. And, uh, you know, because this was why the judgment was about to come upon them. In that prophecy, you also get a promise from the Lord that a remnant is going to survive. That it won't be a wipeout, that some of the Jews will survive and be restored as well. And, of course, eventually that happened. 
Um, then Ezekiel is told to pronounce the judgment against Israel, um, clapping his hands and stamping his feet. So he does a little war dance now. All symbolic, because the Lord was declaring war on his people. Um, in chapter 7, you have a description of when the city fell. Years before it fell, but a description of how terrible it was going to be when the Babylonians destroyed you know, Jerusalem and Judah. And it happened a few years later. Now, chapters 8 to 11 come as a kind of a clump. And what happens here, remember he's in Kibar, up by the river Kibar, in Tel Aviv, miles away. And what happens to him now, he's supernaturally transported to the temple. And, you know, an angel kind of zaps him, takes his hand, and off they go. And so he's back in the land. And the angel shows him all the various forms of idolatry that were taking place in the temple. Because the temple in the walls, it had loads and loads of rooms in it. And the angel takes him around all the rooms in the temple to see all the idolatry that was going on in the actual temple. And then the Lord tells him how angry he is over all this. Then an angel is dispatched. And this angel puts a mark on the forest of any Jews in the city who were still being faithful to the Lord. So they've got a mark on their forest. Then other angels are sent out into the city to kill all the people who don't have that mark on their forehead. So a picture of God's judgment there, that although it was the swords of the army, you know, the Babylonians, who were actually doing the killing, in actual fact they were doing that as the angels of the Lord himself. And he then sees the Shekinah glory of God Remember the Shekinah glory through the wilderness, the pillar of smoke, during, cloud during the day and fire by night. It departs from the temple because the Lord moves out and he sees all the wheels again, you know, the, the, this weird vision of the Lord. And he literally, he sees the Lord move out of the temple. And of course, this is when the Lord is saying to his people, right, I've finished, it's over. The covenant is broken, I'm off and judgment is all that you've got now. And um, Ezekiel then is taken to the leaders who are supervising all this idolatry in the temple. I mean, these were priests, these were elders of the people in the temple, organising idolatry and occultism. And Ezekiel is taken before them and he speaks against them and he prophesies God's judgment. And uh, one of them, um, a guy called Pelatiah, just drops dead immediately. You know, Ezekiel speaks the words of judgment and one of these guys just drops dead. But then God says to him that restoration was going to happen in the future. That this destruction that was going to come upon them wouldn't be the end of the story. And that restoration would occur. And also, a covenant was going to be made with them that would be a new one. 
not like the old one, so that you actually go to chapter 11, let's actually see this, because this is quite a key verse. Chapter 11 and verse 19. And he says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will give them a heart of flesh removed from them, the heart of stone. So a covenant that's new is going to happen amongst the people. One that will change them from the inside out. Under the law, you, you, you had to externally be obedient. It was down to you. But here, Ezekiel is told that something new is going to happen, and it's going to put a new heart within the people. Then he sees the Shekinah glory disappearing across the city over the mountains, and it's gone. So, in this section here, he has seen God move out of the temple and literally vanish over the horizon. And with that, he's taken back home, like to Tel Aviv, where he shares all this with the leaders of the Jews who live there with him. Now, ch chapter 12, remember all this is over a period of, of years as well, so it's not necessarily bang, 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 one day after another. But uh, in, in chapter 12, he acts out another you know, prophetic word now, and he packs all his possessions, he kind of like packs up as someone who's leaving home. And this was a sign to Israel um, that more people would be taken from the land, away from their homes, and into the captivity, which of course happened another wave of people being taken soon occurred. And then he digs a hole in the wall of his house, so he chops a hole in it, and, um, and he moves out all, all his bags that he's packed, he chucks them all out of the house through the hole in the wall, not through the door, but through this hole in the wall. And that was a prophecy that the king, now at the time when he gave this prophecy, the king um, back in Israel was Zedekiah. And this was a prophecy that Zedekiah would actually be caught trying to escape um, through a hole in the wall in the city, in Jerusalem, there are various holes in the wall. And it was a prophecy that he'd be caught trying to escape through this hole in the wall, um, and that he'd have his eyes taken out and would then be taken into exile. And that is exactly what happened. That to Zedekiah, when he knew it was all over, he tried to escape through this hole in the wall of the city. And the Babylonians caught him and they gouged his eyes out and took him into exile. And, um, and then uh, a message also in chapter 12 that, that the end was going to be very, very soon. That, you know, Jerusalem's fall would be just round the corner. So a great build-up here, the impending judgment is coming closer and closer and closer. Remember, although the exile has started, that various waves of exiles are being taken away. All this stuff describing about how Jerusalem falls and Zedekiah, all this is before that happened. So he's describing in detail events that were going to happen very soon after he spoke them, but nevertheless he was describing them uh, before they actually happened. Now in chapter 13, he prophesies against the false prophets. So, you know, sort of like, he was the prophet of the Lord. And of course, his message was doom and gloom. You know, I mean, some people, they think that if something is doom and gloom, it's necessarily not of the Lord. 
Well, he was doom and gloom. He was saying Jerusalem is going to fall. Now, the prophets who were false in Jerusalem and in the exile, what were they saying? They were saying, no, don't worry, God's going to step in. He's going to deliver us. It's going to be fine. Peace. Peace is what it's going to be. And Ezekiel, you know, goes for these guys. He prophesies against you. He says, you're misleading the people. Uh, do you remember in Lamentations that Jeremiah wrote, we saw the bit where he was saying about, you know, the sort of like, you know, all the prophets, they didn't tell the people they had to repent. If they had have done, the people might have repented and the judgment might not have come. And these prophecies, they're just saying, you know, these guys, they're just saying, oh, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. And confirming the people in their sins. And so Ezekiel speaks against them. And uh, in that prophecy as well, he mixes in uh, various condemnatory, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, things against occultism in general, because, of course, idolatry and occultism went hand in hand, and Jerusalem was, was doing the old occult bit, so he mixes that in as well. Now, in ch chapter 14, um, these leaders of Israel who are so into idolatry, they kind of, um, they inquire of the Lord through Ezekiel. Now, this is pure hypocrisy. They're just doing it to look good. You know, to be seen to, you know, some people were accepting Ezekiel. And so they go to him and they say, inquire of the Lord, tell us what the Lord's word is. And um, so Ezekiel gives it to them, repent. That wasn't the word they wanted to hear, but that, that's the word that they got. And, um, and God tells, you know, these leaders through Ezekiel, that even if Noah and Daniel and Job were back home in Jerusalem, Nevertheless, the city could not be spared. God says, even if those righteous men were there, praying and interceding, I would not spare the city. It's gone too far. Of course, had they been there, God would have moved them out to safety, and then the judgment would have come. And uh, so there, the Lord is saying, Jerusalem cannot be spared. There is no hope now. It's all over. It's going to happen. And then comes a prophecy, again, that a remnant will survive. So that the destruction won't be complete, but there'll always be a remnant who survived. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And 70 years later, they went back into the land and re-established themselves, and a new temple was built. Now then, um, in chapter 15, 16 and 17, we get three allegories, uh, one in each chapter. And uh, the first one, uh, in chapter 15, is the allegory... Uh, that Israel is a useless vine that is only fit for burning. Now then, you'll be you know, fully aware of the parables of Jesus and the parallels with that idea. Israel being a vineyard that was only fit for burning. Jesus took up that theme himself. In chapter 16, allegory number 2, and um, Israel there is likened to an unfaithful wife who became a prostitute. And uh, this will feature more when we eventually get on to Hosea, who married a prostitute, precisely to make the point. Um, and Israel is compared with the nations that surrounded her, with the Gentiles. Um, even Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God compares them directly, saying, you're no better than the Gentiles. You're no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and the fact that she was even doing human sacrifice. This was how far she'd gone. 
as though God is saying, you're an unfaithful wife, you've become a prostitute. And yet, ends with a promise that Israel will one day be restored back into the land and that a covenant that was new would be introduced. The new covenant, all right, eventually coming in Jesus. And then in chapter 17, allegory number three, Nebuchadnezzar features here. And he's described as an eagle, or the picture you've got is that an eagle takes the topmost branch of a cedar tree. And he takes this cedar tree back to its land. All right? So the eagle flies in, takes the top off a cedar tree, and flies it back to his own land. Now, the king of the Babylonians is the eagle. The twig that is taken back to the land is King Jehoiakim. So it's him going into exile. Now, he was replaced by Zedekiah, who became king. And Zedekiah, who in the allegory is called the seed of the land, reaches out to another eagle. And that other eagle is Egypt and makes a treaty with Pharaoh. And because he's done that, he'll be taken to Babylon and judged. Now, what you've got here, all right, the Babylonians come in, they take the first wave of exiles, and Jehoiakim, the king, is taken off, back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah as the king in his place, a vassal king. Now, what happened was that Zedekiah made a covenant with Egypt in order to try and get free from the Babylonians. But it went completely wrong, it didn't work. And it was because of that treaty that the Babylonians said, right, that's it, now we just go in and destroy Israel completely. Because they rebelled against their vassal status. And Nebuchadnezzar said, right, that's it, in we go. And Israel was destroyed completely. But then there's a promise that another cedar would be planted by the Lord himself. Remember, in this picture, the cedar that the twig was taken off is Israel, the kingdom of God, Israel. And here the Lord says that another cedar will appear, only this cedar, this king, will be planted by the Lord himself. And as a cedar tree that the Lord himself plants, the birds of every kind will be able to nest in its branches. Now again you'll remember that Jesus used that picture um, himself of the kingdom of God, like a tree, and all the birds of the air made their nest in it. And it's a picture that the Lord's King himself would eventually come, Messiah. And he would head up a kingdom that would eventually bring all the nations of the world into itself. Alright, so that was allegory number three. And of course, with these, you know, sort of like the vine fit for burning and this thing about the, the cedar, you know, and the birds of the air in the branch. You can see how Jesus, in the teaching that he gave all the time, was drawing on the Old Testament, and that you need the one to interpret and fully understand the other. Now, in, in chapter 18, uh, Ezekiel um, does some teaching concerning the fact that, that, that each soul or each person um, will, will die for their own sins and not the sins of the fathers. You know, so if God judges you, he's going to judge you for what you've done, not for what your father's done. 
And, um, you know, so I mean, the point is the people couldn't say, oh, this is coming on us because of the sins of our fathers. It was coming on them because of their sins, period. Um, and also, he gives the teaching that a wicked man can repent and live. That even if judgment is coming on someone, if they repent and turn away from their sins, they can live and the Lord will spare them. But also, he says, a righteous man who's following the Lord can become bad and wicked and be judged. So the point is you can be out of fellowship and under God's judgment, repent and get right with God again. Or alternatively, you can be right with God, then fall into sin that you won't put right and come under judgment. In effect, what Ezekiel is doing, he's making each person accept responsibility for this judgment. It's not just coming on the amorphous nation. It's coming on the nation because of each individual person not being right with God. So he's pushing that so that individuals are forced to take a responsibility for the situation that is coming upon them as a people. And, uh, and it ends with a plea for repentance. Ezekiel cries out to the people to repent and to avail themselves of this new heart, this new spirit that God will give them. It's there. I mean, the new covenant was actually there all the time. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And although in one sense the new covenant was yet to, to be future, Jesus hadn't come yet, in another way the new covenant was there all the time. It was there before the old covenant. Abraham was before the law. And Ezekiel is pleading with the people to repent, get right with God. In effect what he's saying is get born again. See, they were God's people, but they weren't believers. He's saying, get born again. You'll be changed from the inside. And, of course, his pleas fell on deaf ears. In chapter 19, he does a, a lament over Judah's kings. And remember, the thing about Judah's kings, as opposed to the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah's kings were all in the line of David. They were the Davidic, the Davidic line from whom Messiah was going to come. So all the kings of Judah, to that extent, were the right kings. They were God's kings, as it were. But he's lamenting over them because so many of them, and all of them at this time, were completely out of fellowship with God. They were useless kings. And uh, in this lament, he uses the picture of a lioness and her cubs and um, also the picture of a vineyard that was only fit for burning and uh, you know sort of like the you know the lioness and her cubs you know Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah you know and all these cubs you know but they weren't what they should have been because they 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 weren't obedient to the Lord you know they were sort of like against him the whole time and, uh, you know, and then the picture of the vineyard that was no good for anything but burning because it bore no fruit. And again, that, that's the picture that Jesus, as we've already seen, picked up very powerfully. And in chapter 20, Ezekiel goes on to a historical review now. And he, he, he takes the people back over their history as a nation. And uh, he, he reminds them of Egypt when they were brought out of Egypt from under Pharaoh. Um, and of course, as they were brought out of Egypt, what did they do? Moan, moan, groan, groan, rebel, rebel, rebel. 
next stage through the wilderness. What did they do? Moan, moan, groan, groan, rebel, rebel, rebel. Um, and then eventually they got in the land. What happened then? Moan, moan, groan, groan, rebel, 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 and now they're being kicked out of the land. And this was the history of Judah. And this is given as the reason why judgment is now coming on the southern kingdom, on Judah and Jerusalem. It's because that history, all along the way, moan, moan, rebel, rebel, they're still doing it, and so they're out. But, again, the promise that Israel will be restored is there. So the point is, the Lord is showing them that they're going to be taken into captivity. The Babylonians are going to get them. They can't be saved. But the nation will survive through the remnant, as we're going to go on to see one day Israel will be glorious again in the land. So all is not lost. Um, in chapter 21, a prophecy that the sword of the Lord is going to be unsheathed against Jerusalem. Now we've already saw when Ezekiel was transported to the temple in Jerusalem, the angel that put the mark on the foreheads of the faithful, and then the other angels went out and killed them. All right? That's the sword of the Lord. That's the prophecy here. It's repeated again. And it's the Babylonians who are the sword of the Lord. It's this nation who are even more evil than they are who is going to be the means of judgment. And the king is the sword of the Lord. The Babylonian king is actually the means of God's judgment. And Nebuchadnezzar, pagan though he was, although he eventually got converted, was nevertheless the sword of the Lord. And here you have the sovereignty of God. It doesn't matter that nations don't follow the Lord. They do his will. That's the sovereignty of God. And then you get a prophecy against the Ammonites. Why you get a prophecy against the Ammonites there, I don't know, but you do. Boom. Right, chapter 22. He outlines in detail the sins, the specific sins that God is judging them for. So, in a sense, can you see he's analysing it from a hundred different angles? That's what he's doing. Every aspect of it, he's analysing it. He's, he's taking everything apart and saying, look, understand fully why judgement is coming upon you and you're being removed from the land. Now, he goes into specific sins. Idolatry and deceit, violence, immorality, injustice and slander. They, those sins are the reason why Israel is being taken out of the land. And then the picture of the smelting pot is used. This is where you've got a goldsmith or a silversmith or a refiner of metals and you, you've got the crucible and you, you heat it up, you chuck the metal in that's contaminated and as it melts all the dross, all the muck and the grunge comes up to the top and it can be skimmed off. So therefore, when the metal cools down again, it, there's, there's less dross, it's more pure. And that picture is being used, that that is what God is doing to the people. You know, he's skimming this lot off because they're no good, but to refine them as a nation. And of course, in the New Testament, the trials and the tribulations, the difficulties we go through, are exactly that process of God working us. You know, Paul uses it, You're, you know, and Peter as well, they both use this you know, picture of, of our faith being refined like, like gold. And, um, you know, because I mean, tough times, 
what does it do? All our sin bubbles up to the surface, everything that God needs to deal with it can be skimmed off, makes us realise the truth about ourselves and the difficulties are exactly that, the Lord testing our faith, so that we come out of it with a, a bit more pure gold, that's Jesus, and a bit less dross, that's us, and our sinful nature. So that picture of the testing of metals there. Right, now in, uh, in, in 23, chapter 23, we come on to another parable. And um, this is a parable of two adulterous sisters. One is called Ohola, and one is called Oholibar. <laughs> so the parable of the two adulterous sisters, Ohola and Oholibar. Now let me explain this. Ohola, sister number one, was Samaria. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel, that had gone into captivity a hundred years previously. Oholibar is Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, Judah, that is about to go into captivity. So they're the two sisters, Ohola, Samaria, northern kingdom, gone into captivity, Oholibar, Jerusalem, southern kingdom, about to go into captivity, Judah. Now, in this allegory, Ohola lusted after the Assyrians and fell into their hands. See, adulteress. Picture of a, this woman lusting after these soldiers. Um, and so she fell into the hands of the Assyrians and was carted off into captivity. Now, Oholibar, not put off by this, lusts after the Babylonians and will therefore go the way of her sister into captivity. So the push behind this is that sister number two should have learnt what happened to sister number one when she did a certain thing. So the point is, sister two sees sister one lust after the Assyrians and gets taken away by them. She should have learnt her lesson, don't go lusting after soldiers from another land. Now the point is, what it's saying is that Jerusalem should have learned the lesson from the northern kingdom. They forsook the Lord and were destroyed. Now the lesson to be learned from that is don't forsake the Lord. But here she's now making exactly the same mistake. She's forsaken the Lord as well. So the fate that befell her sister a hundred years earlier is going to befall her. She'd learnt nothing. That's the push behind the allegory here. And also, Ohola, Samaria, northern kingdom Israel, means her tent. Oholibar, Jerusalem, southern kingdom, Judah, means my tent is in her. Now, what that boils down to is this, that the southern kingdom, Judah, was a messianic one. The northern kingdom was the breakaway kingdom. The northern kingdom, her kings weren't in the messianic line. It was a joke, it was dreadful, it was terrible. Judah is in the messianic line, it is the messianic nation. If you like, the kingdom divided, well Judah was the right side to be on. Alright? 
my tent is in her. The Lord's saying, you know, sort of like, you know, the south, I wasn't really with them. Sorry, the north, Israel, I wasn't really with them. But with you, I'm really with you. And what he's saying is, look, you are the in-fellowship kingdom. The other kingdom, the north, was the out-fellowship kingdom. It's hardly surprising that they went into captivity. And he's saying, but you, the southern kingdom, my messianic kingdom. And what he's saying is that precisely because of the greater light you had, the judgment that you undergo is going to be all the worse because of that. So it's half understandable that sister number one, Oholiar, went into captivity. She hardly knew any different. But Oholibar, the southern kingdom, she knew better. She was the messianic sister, if you like, the chosen sister. And yet in spite of that, she's done exactly the same as her sister who wasn't chosen. And so therefore, the south is more guilty than the north. The north went into exile, but the south is even more guilty because it was the Messianic nation, and now they're going to go into exile as well. Now then, chapter 24 finds us on the day that the siege against Jerusalem starts. So Nebuchadnezzar starts the siege against the holy city. Now, chapter 24 is the day of the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel likens Jerusalem to a cooking pot. You know, one of these big, big you know, like stew pots that they had in the ancient world. But you, you chuck everything in and, and it gets boiled. And uh, But in this one, afterwards, the, the bones of the meal get burned. You know, the, the, the whole thing is a disaster. It's, it's just gone completely wrong. And what happens is that this same day, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he started the siege against Jerusalem. Ezekiel speaks out and says, you're like a cooking pot. Everything has gone in to be boiled up and, you know, let's see what comes out, you know, and even the bones are going to get burned. It's, it's absolutely disastrous, all right? And this same day his wife dies so he's widowed and the Lord tells him that he's not to mourn for her so that's quite quite difficult but what the picture is here is that as death dissolves a marriage Ezekiel this he woke up that morning a married man the siege against Jerusalem starts he does the cooking pot prophecy and then bang, suddenly he's not married anymore. He's a widower. He's a widow. Widower, that's right. And that in the same way that death ends a marriage. So what's happened here is that the relationship that God has with people, with, with his people, is now to be dissolved as well. And the city is going to die just like Ezekiel's wife because the marriage is over. The relationship has come to an end. And so in this picture, Ezekiel is the Lord, his wife is Jerusalem. And she dies. Because Jerusalem is going to die. The siege lasted some years, but the result was that Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And um, also, Ezekiel is forbidden to speak again until he hears that the city had actually fallen. And from the day that Nebuchadnezzar marched in and started the siege, it was three years before Jerusalem actually fell and was destroyed. So Ezekiel, he's woken up one morning, 
He's heard that the siege has begun and Nebuchadnezzar has moved against Jerusalem. He prophesies doing the cooking pot thing. Then his wife dies. The Lord tells him that he's not to mourn for her and that he's not to open his mouth again until he hears that the city has fallen. Because God had nothing more to say to anyone. See, what was happening now couldn't be undone. It was too late for repentance. So therefore there was nothing more to say. So Ezekiel <coughs> stayed silent for three years. Right, now we move into the third section. Into the prophecies against the Gentiles and the surrounding nations. We saw this pattern in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well. You get God's judgment against his own people. And the means of the judgment of the Gentile nations. But of course, they come under judgment as well. So now, having dealt with the fact that Israel is going to be judged by the Gentiles, now God moves on to assure the Jews that the Gentiles are going to be judged as well. And then of course it all ends with Israel being restored, because Israel is going to end up top dog. All God's promises for Israel would eventually be fulfilled. So in chapter 25 you get prophecies against Ammon and Moab, Edom and the Philistines. I'm not going to go into them. But they're the nations prophesied against <coughs> in chapter 25. <coughs> now in chapter 26 through to 28, you get prophecies all against Tyre. You've heard of Tyre and Sidon. Well, the nation of Tyre. And, um, and that the prophecies are that Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy Tyre. So Tyre will be destroyed in exactly the same way as Jerusalem. And having given that prophecy, there's a lament over the Tyrian Empire, Tyre, Tyrian, right, Tyrian Empire, and it's likened to a ship that's sinking, and it was a big seafaring nation. Tyre was known throughout the then known world for its navy, its fleet of ships. And this lament over the nation of Tyre then turns into a lament over the king of Tyre, a guy called Ito Baal. Now, if you just turn to chapter 28, and I want to show you something that we noted before in Isaiah. Because something happens here that happened in one of the prophecies of Isaiah, only concerning Nebuchadnezzar. Here, it concerns Itabel. And uh, in chapter 28, and if you uh, just, um, if you go, like, the first ten verses, all right, it's a prophecy against the ruler of Tyre, the king of Tyre, all right? This guy called Itabael. Now, in verse 11, listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Um, go down to verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. Verse 16. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub. Now, do you remember we saw back in Isaiah that in the context of a prophecy against Nebuchadnezzar, a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar existed, but in a prophecy against him, it suddenly, the prophecy switched and was clearly no more about a man. 
And that what it did is that it slips behind what I call the Cosmic Curtain to the demonic power at the back of the Babylonian Empire. And so what is a prophecy concerning a human king then becomes a prophecy concerning Satan himself who was the power, who was the, if you like, the heavenly power, the spiritual power behind that earthly power. Now, this is exactly what happens here again, all right? And only concerning the king of time. So the prophecy against him and his empire, and then suddenly it slips, as it were, behind the cosmic curtain, and we have information about Satan, who was the spiritual power behind the earthly power of Tyre. And so that's, that's quite interesting, because from the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 14, and the prophecy here in Ezekiel 28, we actually get information about Satan and his history that we wouldn't have had any other way. And, uh, and of course, when we get on to Daniel, obviously, we, again, we peek behind the cosmic curtains there to see that behind the nations are spiritual powers, be it the goody angels, all right, or the baddy angels. You know, sort of be it the angels who are working in a nation or an area or a situation to further God's will, and the demons who are working in a nation, an area, a circumstance to do Satan's will. That's the spiritual warfare. That's the, the battle that we have, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers at the back of flesh and blood. And, um, you know, so, so that's just kind of um, interesting little thing there. And um, still here in chapter 28, a um, hundred years or so earlier, um, there was the lead up to the Assyrian you know, captivity of Israel in the Northern Kingdom. All right, and at that point, information was given about Satan. Right? And then here, in the lead up to the captivity of the southern kingdom, we have a prophecy again with information about Satan. So there's a, a kind of a, a pattern there. So, the general context, the prophecy against the nation of Tyre and its king, and then specifically a prophecy against Sidon, one of its big cities, and that was 20 miles to the north. All right. um, then, a promise of a time when Israel will dwell in the land in complete safety from the surrounding nations and obviously the millennium there and I will get onto that um, a bit later. Right, chapter 29 to 32. Um, this concerns, uh, we've seen that Tyre was going to fall uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, now we see that Egypt is going to fall to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, so this great nation Egypt is now going to go into captivity as well and um, the pharaoh at the time was a bloke called Hofna and he's likened to a river monster uh, probably a crocodile um, who, who is caught by the Lord through Nebuchadnezzar you know the you know he being the means that God is using for judgment and uh, also, he's likened, either uh, Hofner, the pharaoh, likened to a cedar tree that's cut down by the Lord. And then lastly, he's likened to a lion who had been netted. So this all at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, God's means of judgment, not just against Israel, but against the then known world. Also, Egypt had various satellite nations, vassal nations, 
and they're included in this prophecy as well, Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Jubal and Edom. So they all come under the gambit of these prophecies against um, Egypt and uh, they are all consigned to Sheol, the place of the dead, that their end is, is upon them. Now we start to move into the fourth section. We move, start to move out of the prophecies against Gentile nations and we begin to move into the last section which is the restoration and the end times when Israel was going to be restored in the end times when she would be back in the land in full glory and so you see the pattern Israel are God's people they're in the land they've sinned God judges them they're moved out of the land they're taken into exile by the Gentiles so they're judged off they go at the hands of the Gentiles but then prophecies that God is going to judge the Gentiles because that's not the end of the story because the Gentiles are even more you know, evil than Israel were so therefore judgment is going to come upon the nations that means of judgment to Israel but it doesn't end there because Israel is one day going to be restored back into the land and has a glorious future whereas the Gentile nations don't have a glorious future alright so we now move into this this section so in chapter 33 Ezekiel returns to the picture of the watchman, right? we have that again, you know, like looking you know, for the enemy to appear, um, that was from chapter 3, and then he, he returns again to the theme of each man dying for his own uh, sins, that was in chapter 18. Now, word reaches him that Jerusalem has now fallen, so after the interlude of the prophecies against the nations, we pick up the chronology of the ministry of Ezekiel. His wife has died, three years silence, all right? Now, we, at the end of the three years, he can speak again. So ministry resumes to Israel. There's been this interlude of the prophecies concerning the Gentiles. Now, I don't know if you can see it, but what a picture there of, of the gap in the New Testament, you know, where it goes from the history of Israel, then there's the gap that deals with the Gentiles, that's the church, and then Israel fades back in, the rapture, and then Israel, the kingdom of God on earth again. So that's uh, that pattern, you know, here. Never mind about that. And, uh, but word reaches him that Jerusalem has fallen, so he knows that the siege is over, and uh, the, 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 his silence is now lifted. And um, we get a, a few verses that describe how the, the Jews in exile with him uh, begin to listen to what he says. Up to now, no one's listened to him, let alone done it. They haven't listened to him. But now, the Jews in exile with him start to listen. They don't do anything that he says, but they start to listen. So if you want to see that as a positive step forward, Ezekiel has a positive step forward. No one took a blind bit of notice what he said, but at least they listened to what he said. No defeating. Right, chapter 34. And he gives a prophecy against Israel's shepherds. Now these are the kings and the priests throughout Israel's history. And the denunciation against them is because they led the people to ruin. They were bad leadership. And that they fleeced the sheep for their own personal gain. So it's a judgment against leadership in Israel that rather than care, you know, the shepherds caring for the sheep, the shepherds fleeced the sheep for their own gain. So totally selfish leadership. And God promises that one day he would come amongst them himself and he would be their shepherd. And of course Jesus said, 
I am the good shepherd. So there is a prophecy of Messiah eventually to come to his own people as their shepherd and to be the total opposite to the leadership in Israel that had gotten into this mess. Because, of course, Jesus said that, that, that he lays his life down for the sheep. Well, these leaders have the sheep laying their lives down for them. The opposite way around. Now, in chapter 35, you get a prophecy against Edom. Now, the reason for this prophecy against Edom is that uh, Israel is in the process of being completely carted off now. The city has fallen. Thousands and thousands of them have been killed, but those who survive have been carried to the four winds. All right, the, uh, that prophecy when he shaved, blah, blah, blah. Right? They're being carried off now. And Eden got it into their heads that now that Israel is being carted off, uh, you know, the Israelites are going off into exile, the Babylonians are busy taking them off into exile, no one's looking, let's nab the promised land for ourselves. And uh, so the Lord prophes you know, here Ezekiel prophesies against them, and he says, for that plan that you had, God's going to judge you. For thinking you could slip in and take over the promised land. And three years later, Nebuchadnezzar enslaved Eden as well. See, so, God's judgment on them. Now, everything that now follows is unfulfilled prophecy. So, for the rest of the book, we're dealing purely now with prophecies that are yet to happen. All right. Um, so, chapter 36. And you have a prophecy that Israel would eventually now you might say, but that's been fulfilled very well. Ah, listen to the rest of it. And that the land would be like the Garden of Eden. That hasn't happened yet. So here it's talking about a time when Israel is going to be restored to the land and everything is going to be absolutely fantastic. It's going to be like paradise on earth again. And the nation at that time will be made up of believers who have a new heart and a new spirit. The new covenant, not the old, the new covenant. They'll all be in the new covenant. And a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. So this will be an Israel dwelling in the land with the land like the Garden of Eden and all of them living in submission and faithfulness to the Lord. And God is going to do this, bring this about, not because of them, but to vindicate his own holy name. Because his promises to them remain unfulfilled. Some of the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in history, but many haven't. And God is a God, one of his word, and two, a God is powerful enough to perform his work. So therefore, in order to vindicate his own name, Israel must end up back in the land with the land being a paradise. Because it vindicates the name of God. And the nations that have opposed Israel by them will have been completely judged. But Israel will be completely blessed. And of course, that's the picture of the millennium. The thousand-year reign of Christ with the earth restored to how it was before the flood. That is still future. That's yet to happen. Now, in chapter 37, we have the, the famous vision of the dry bones them bones, them bones, them dry bones, as the old spiritual does. And what happens is that Ezekiel, he sees this valley of dry bones, full of all, just bones, all strewn everywhere. And, uh, you know, the Lord says, prophesy, speak to the bones, and so he speaks, and they come together. 
alright, and they form bodies. Then he speaks to them again, and uh, these skeletons they cover with sinew and flesh. So now they're bodies, albeit dead bodies. But then the Lord says, speaks to them again, and he does, and now they receive the breath of life. Now, obviously, um, there's, there's a million things that that can correctly and properly stand for. But its prime meaning in the scripture, it's quite specific, is that it's a picture of Israel eventually getting into the land. Going from just being dry bones to eventually becoming a living nation back in the land. So there's spiritual application there in a hundred different ways, and that's valid. But the meaning within the context is that it's referring to Israel's eventual return into the land i.e. a nation will go from being dead, dry bones, to forming together as a body but no life in it. Interestingly enough, that's a good description of Israel in the land at the moment because they're not following the law, but they're in the land. But to being properly alive with the spirit of life in them, i.e. in the land in the thousand year reign of Christ. And then Ezekiel is told to get two sticks which he joins together. And these two sticks, one stands for Israel, the northern kingdom, and the other stands for Judah, the southern kingdom. And he joins them together, so they're one again. So the ten lost tribes of Israel are going to be found. They're going to get unlost. The Lord knows where they are. Don't get the picture they're in some land that no one's ever found or anything like that, but the point is, genetically they're out there, and the Lord knows who they are. So the nation will be one again, the divided kingdom will reunite, all right, and all the, the tribes will be there together. And they will be one nation with the Messiah, here called David, as king over them. David obviously being the ultimate in the Old Testament picture of Messiah. Messiah being the son of David. And so they're going to be in the land both north and south, the kingdoms joined again, and Messiah is going to be their king. A thousand year reign of Christ. Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. And they will then be faithful. There will be no idolatry. And God will have an everlasting covenant of peace with them, and God will dwell with them. Now that hasn't happened yet. Israel has never you know, yet being consistently faithful to the Lord, then it will happen. Now in chapter 38 and 39, we get the Gog and Magog thing. Um, now what happened, Magog, alright, um, is an, a, an area where Russia now is. Um, get thousands of books written on this, you know, sort of like, you know, invasion, you know, people who are waiting for Russia to invade Israel and things like that. But um, Magog, definitely the area where Russia now is. And uh, Gog, their leader, and leading a coalition which includes Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Kush and Put. Now they're all geographical areas which are around the Russian region. Now, these nations, they come together, and um, under the, the leader, Gog, now just put in, it's possible at this point, although the experts aren't sure, but they think it's possible, that rather than Gog being the actual name of an actual person, and Magog being the literal name of a nation, all right, it could be a generic term, meaning the leader and his people. But whether it's literally 
a man called Gog who leads a nation called Magog, or whether it is just a leader and his people, whatever the nation is. It's definitely a nation under, under the leadership of one man will attack Israel. So you do get this invasion, Gog leads his people, Magog, against Israel, attacks from the north. All right. And this invasion is going to be at a time when Israel is living in safety. Now, what happens when Gog and his army, the nation Magog, attack? God will himself destroy Gog and his army. And it will take Israel seven months to bury the dead. And Israel will use the weapons for firewood for seven years. Now, question, when does this happen? There's an awful lot of debate about this. Let me say, it seems to me pretty clear. In Revelation 20, you get the fact that this happens at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the context here in Ezekiel is the thousand-year reign of Christ. So it's nothing to do with the lead-up to the rapture. So those people who are waiting for Russia to invade Israel so they can say, oh, now, now the rapture's going to happen. No, it's not that. Uh, neither is it at the end of the Great Tribulation before the Second Coming, because... Uh, there's just not time. It, it doesn't, and, and Israel is not definitely not living in peace during the Great Tribulation. So, therefore, when is it? Well, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, what happens? Satan and all the demons are released from the bottomless pit, or Tartarus, or the abyss, right? Having been locked down there for a thousand years, and no sooner are they out than a, a, a kind of a replay of the Antichrist happens, and uh, attack. Israel to kill Jesus. And, um, and the point is that because this happens at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, Israel is living in peace and you've got seven years no problem for them to be burning the weapons as firewood. So this is how the thousand year reign of Christ begins. And Gog and Magog is kind of a repeat of the Antichrist. You know, the, anti the beast, the world system, the Antichrist, is kind of a replay of that. Satan doesn't come up with anything new, plays the same old card again and again and again. And then chapter 39 ends with a promise that uh, God will one day pour out his spirit on all Israel. And of course there's a parallel to Joel there. Uh, you know, on the last days I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, and you know, we'll see that when we get to Joel. But here in chapter 39, the promise that God will pour his spirit out on all of Israel. I.e. the day is coming when every Israelite is filled with the Spirit, because they're believers. Now, when's that going to be? The millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Right, now in chapters 40 to 42, um, Ezekiel is, is now taken for a tour, and a very detailed tour, of the temple that is going to be in Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Very similar to Solomon's temple, but there are differences, not that we've got time to go into that. Now, remember, John the Apostle, in order to write Revelation, he was transported into the future, wasn't he? To see the Great Tribulation and the Thousand-Year Reign of Christ. Well, here it's happening to Ezekiel. And earlier on, Ezekiel had been, as it were, taken through, through space from Tel Abib, to the temple in Jerusalem, all right, he was transported miraculously in space, all right, to see the temple in Jerusalem. Now, 
he's transported not just in space but in time as well because he's taken back into Jerusalem like he was before but not Jerusalem when he was alive but Jerusalem as it's going to be during the thousand year reign of Christ so now he's transported through time and space right no you know time travel Doctor Who see so I knew Doctor Who was realistic I really did right so he's getting a tour of the temple in Jerusalem during the thousand year reign of Christ and he's I'll just give you a quick list of what he describes, and the, the description is detailed, we can't go into it, but he describes the actual temple area, the east gate, that's the gate on the wall opposite the west wall, the outer gate, the outer court, that's the one just outside the inner one, the north gate, which is the other side from the south gate, and the south gate, which was the other end from the north gate. Then he sees the gates to the inner court, all right, which were just in a bit from the outer ones, then he was taken into the rooms where they prepared the sacrifices. Then the rooms where the priests were. And then he gives the actual measurements, and he, the size of the temple. Now, his description is important, perhaps not so much for what he says is there, but for what we deduce isn't there. Because there's no Ark of the Covenant. And what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. There's no high priest. There's no type, uh, tables of the law. They're not there. Why? Because they've all been fulfilled in Jesus. All those things were pictures of Jesus. Well, Jesus is living in the temple himself. There's no need for types of Jesus in this temple because Jesus is living there himself. It's literally his home. Literally where he is living. And, um, and there are motifs in, in panelled wood all around. And uh, they depict the cherubim, and they're the angels who immediately surround the throne of God. And motives of, of a lion and a man looking at a palm tree. Now the lion, Jesus, was the lion of the tribe of Judah. A man is looking at the palm tree because God became a man. Jesus is God become a man. Emmanuel, God, is with us. And then the palm tree, because the palm tree in the ancient world denoted kingly victory. Do you remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus rising to Jerusalem, they put palm trees in front of him. A king riding on a colt. And so they said, we accept that you're a king, and they put palm leaves down. It's a picture of Jesus' kingly authority during the thousand year reign of Jesus. And the temple is the palace. That's where he lives. Now, in, in chapter 43 and 44, you remember when Ezekiel, when he was transported to the temple in Jerusalem in his own time, when he got there, he saw the Shekinah glory leave, didn't he? And it vanished over the horizon. And you, you, you had all, you know, sort of like the wheels and blah, blah, blah. Well, now, um, he sees the Shekinah glory enter this temple because God is there. Unlike the other temple that God has left, this one, God is there. Because, of course, where Jesus is, the Shekinah glory is. Now, how do I know that? Well, because Jesus is the Shekinah glory. He is the glory of God. How do we see God in the face of Christ? He is the glory of God. I don't know what that, how that relates to the wheels, <laughs> but they're there somewhere. And, um, you know, so he sees the Shekinah glory because Jesus is... In him, the fullness of Godhead dwells in bodily form. Then, 
he receives instructions concerning the altar and the mode of worship. And this, this includes the instructions concerning the Levites and priests as well. Because you've gone back to a situation where, remember, in, in Israel, the government virtually was the priesthood, and you get a return to this. All right. And also we get the fact that the east gate, now you'll remember because that's the one on the other side of the temple from the west gate, that the east gate could only be used by the prince. So that was Jesus' own. Well, the exact opposite of a tradesman's entrance. That is Jesus' own personal entrance and only he can go into it. <laughs> now in chapters 45 and 46, uh, you, you, you have details of portions of the land which are for the prince only. So bits of land that only Jesus can go to, and various portions that are given to others, you know, like, you know, personal gifts and that. Uh, then, then there are rules for celebrating the Feast of Passovers and Tabernacles, and rules about worship and sacrifices in general. Now, the point is, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus. This is probably far more like the Love Feast, it looks back to Jesus. It's, it's obviously quite separate from the, from the sacrificial system as in the law of Moses, but we, we can't, haven't got time to go into that. And, um, you know, but obviously there's a sacrificial system. Some think that possibly if, you, you know, if someone commits a crime, they may have to bring a sort of a, a, a lamb or something and kill it in sacrifice, not in order for them to be forgiven, because confessing to Jesus does that, but maybe the act of sacrifice will underline what it costs Jesus to win them their salvation. But there are various theories about that, but uh, you know, we, we just haven't got time. Then, the last two chapters, 47 and 48, Ezekiel sees a river flowing from the temple that goes all the way to the Dead Sea, bringing it to life. So it comes from the altar, and it's a little trickle. It goes out the temple, and the further it goes, the wider and deeper it gets. Um, and um, as it and, and, and it, it kind of it goes into uh, you know the Dead Sea and it brings it to life. So wherever this river goes, it brings life. It's the river of life. And um, and then it ends with the apportionment of the land between the twelve tribes. So of course, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, Israel, each tribe will actually get the whole bit of land allotted to it, and that they never got back in the time of Joshua, right through to the time of David and Solomon, and up to the captivity. And of course, what we've got here is that Jerusalem, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, is a counterpart to the new Jerusalem, heaven, that comes down and lands on the earth in the eternal state. Um, as is the river that Ezekiel sees, a, a, a counterpart to the river of life in heaven um, in Revelation chapter 22. And, uh, you know, but obviously in Revelation it's made clear that in the eternal state there is no temple. Not in the eternal state. And the reason for that is that the Lord won't be living in the temple anymore because he'll, he'll be living on earth. Earth will be his home and heaven will be his home. And the point is, in the eternal state, heaven lands on the new earth, so that God's home, heaven, is now on our home, earth, and we all live together in the same place. And so, so there'll be no, no temple in the eternal state. So, similarity there with um, John on Patmos and Revelation because of the overlapping time frame. And, you know, the same with Daniel as well. So, uh, an awful lot in Ezekiel about the... Um, millennium. We saw quite a lot about it in Isaiah, but in Isaiah it was tidbits interspersed all over the place. Ezekiel is, is much more straightforward because it ends with 
a description of um, the millennial temple and uh, the earth during the millennium. So, uh, I'll leave it there. <laughs>